You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Robert Moan. Francis Moan was born in Dundee, Scotland, in June of 1948. He was the eldest of three in his family and the only boy. Moan was a quiet child who kept to himself and had few friends. His home life was disruptive, and eventually his mother left the home and Moan was raised by his grandmother. Author David Leslie, who corresponded with Moan, describes him as an unhappy teenager. He did have some friends and went out with a few girls but seemed unable to form any lasting relationships. Nor did Moan do particularly well in school, though he was later noted as being quite intelligent. He was enrolled in the local Catholic secondary school in Dundee, St. John's, but he was expelled. Moan said that his time being taught by some of the Marist brothers exposed him to abuse. After leaving school at 15, Moan moved to London for a while, where he attended an approved school, but he decided at age 18 to join the army. He hoped that he would be able to fulfil his potential there, and so he joined the Gordon Highlanders. Unfortunately, Moan's army career did not go as planned. After training and being posted to Germany, Moan was withdrawn from normal duties and assigned to administrative work and he'd been told that after a period of furlough, he would not be travelling with his regiment to their next posting in Libya. When Moan next returned to the UK for that furlough, he went AWOL. Instead, he bought himself a single-barrel, 12-gauge shotgun in London and returned home to Dundee and spent his time drinking. On the 1st of November 1967, Moan found himself drunk and standing outside a pub across from his old school, St. John's. He decided to walk back to the hotel he was staying at and returned to the school with his shotgun. At around 2pm that afternoon, Moan entered his old school. Moan had entered Mrs. Nanette Hansen's classroom, brandishing the gun. The first classroom he'd gone into had been empty, and when the odd young man carrying a shotgun had walked into the needlework class, some of the 14- and 15-year-old girls thought that the whole thing was some sort of joke, until Moan let off a shot. Then the teens began crying and panicking. Mrs. Hansen, however, remained calm as Moan barricaded the door with tables and chairs. Mrs. Hansen took control of the situation quickly. As senior staff members and police arrived at the class after the first shot was fired, Nanette told them that she was managing things and that if they entered, they would only increase the danger. This was acceded to by police and others, in part due to the layout of the school, which meant that gaining access to the classroom in question was difficult. The entire school was evacuated as emergency services and reporters gathered at the school gates, awaiting news of the standoff inside. 
Another young woman, 18-year-old student nurse Marion Young, was called to the classroom. Moan had asked for her specifically. She had known Moan when he attended the school and the Dundee Courier reported that Marion had briefly gone out with him years before. The police asked if she would speak to the young man through the door, but Miss Young asked Miss Hansen to see if Moan would let her in. He did. And so Miss Young entered the classroom. The London Gazette reported that he fired several shots through the door of the classroom, where the principal, members of staff and the police had gathered. Moan's grandmother was also sent for to see if she might be able to defuse the situation. According to the Daily Mail, when Marion Young entered the classroom, Moan was sitting on a sink unit in his army uniform with the shotgun laid across his lap. Only one of the girls was visible. She was sitting near to the teacher's desk. The others had hidden in a separate changing area at the back of the room. The curtains in the room were mostly closed over, excepting one at the far end of the classroom. Miss Young had said to Moan that she wouldn't speak to him unless he agreed to let the schoolgirls go, which he finally did. Mrs. Hansen and Miss Young could hear them screaming as they fled down the stairs away from the classroom. After that, the door was barricaded by Moan once more. Moan, Hansen and Young then chatted together about the weather, about their families. Moan wouldn't talk about the army. He asked the women if they thought he'd kill someone. Ms. Young had said no, she didn't think he would. Later, it would be speculated that this answer had triggered feelings of inadequacy in Moan. It had reminded him of all the other things in life he wasn't capable of, like finishing school or progressing in the army. It had underlined for him his inability to act, to follow through, to achieve, and in that moment, Moan resolved to end that recurring pattern. He would no longer be ineffective. Moan then turned to Mrs. Hansen and asked her the same question. In response, she said she wasn't sure if Moan could shoot or not. He began pacing the room, and then suddenly, with no warning, he lifted the gun and, pointing it at nothing in particular, pulled the trigger. It clicked, but nothing happened. Then he turned to Mrs. Hansen and again pulled the trigger, to hear only a click. Then he pointed at Miss Young, and again, no shot was fired. The women thought perhaps the gun hadn't been loaded, but then Moan ejected a cartridge and reloaded it. Moan then told Mrs. Hansen to go close the one remaining curtain at the far end of the room, and as she turned to walk towards the window, there was a bang. Moan had shot the teacher. Miss Young ran to Mrs. Hansen and checked her pulse. It was very weak. Miss Young pleaded with Moan to help her with Mrs. Hansen, but she said he just laughed at her and said she was to do whatever she liked. Marion jumped up and began pulling the barriers away from the door and called for a stretcher. Then she ran back to Mrs. Hansen where she lay. Moan had sat himself down in the meantime and continued to laugh. Marion said he sounded crazy or hysterical. Then police with dogs entered the room and the officers arrested Moan. According to the Dundee Courier, as Moan was led from the top-floor classroom, he appeared eerily calm. But as he walked down the corridor lined with police officers, he was slapped and shoved. The men who had stood helplessly outside the door to Mrs. Hansen's needlework class for the previous two hours were not calm, 
and they struck out at the young man who had terrorised 11 teenagers and an entire school. On the 2nd of November 1967, Robert Francis Moan appeared in private before the Dundee Sheriff's Court. He was charged with the murder of Nanette Hansen. Mrs. Hansen was only 26 and had been married the previous Easter. She was pregnant at the time of her shooting at the school. Nanette had died of her injuries within hours of her arrival at the Royal Infirmary. As he stood before Sheriff Christie, Robert Francis Moan was handcuffed to a police officer. The then 19-year-old was remanded in custody for further examination. A special mass was held at the school for the pupils on the 2nd of November, and prayers were offered for Mrs. Hansen. There were reports that a number of the students were in tears throughout the special service. 1,000 students at the school attended the memorial. The chaplain of the school, Father Roach, praised Mrs. Hansen, saying that, quote, It was due to Mrs. Hansen's courage that a worse tragedy didn't follow. The children that left that room will remember for the rest of their lives what Mrs. Hansen did, end quote. After the service, the school was closed for the rest of the week. Moan appeared once more the following week before the sheriff's court in Dundee. On Monday the 6th of November, four additional charges of assault were laid against him. On Friday the 12th of January 1968, Moan appeared before the court to be given his trial date. It was made clear at that time that Moan would be entering a plea of insanity. A list of witnesses put forth by the Crown indicated that 11 schoolgirls would be called to give evidence and that part of the physical evidence to be introduced included 28 shotgun cartridges. The court was told that Moan had also attempted to quote-unquote ravish two 14-year-old girls. A week later, Robert Francis Moan appeared in the High Court for his hearing. His defence counsel submitted that Moan was insane and unfit to plead in the case. Following this, two doctors gave evidence to the court supporting this statement. Dr Peter George Anji from the Royal Dundee Hospital told the court that Robert Moan suffered from schizophrenia, which had developed over the previous two or three years. Mr Donald Macaulay, appearing for the Crown, recognised the bravery of the two women who had intervened after Moan entered the school to try and defuse the situation and remove the teenage girls from harm. He said, quote, As a result of the joint efforts of Mrs. Hansen and Miss Young, the safety of the children was ensured and they were ultimately released. End quote. He went on to say, quote, The situation is one for which there was and is no ready-made answer. It was a situation where one false move on the part of the people outside the classroom, without knowledge of the intentions and actions of the accused, might have led to the death or certainly serious injury of some of the school children. That this did not happen is largely due to the courageous actions of Mrs. Hansen and Miss Young. End quote. Lord Thompson's judgment on the matter said in part, quote, Having regard to the medical evidence, he would find that Moan was insane and could not be tried on the present indictment. Moan was then ordered to be detained in the state mental hospital at Carstairs, Lanarkshire. The state hospital, located near the village of Carstairs and better known by that name, is the Scottish equivalent of Broadmoor. 
and provides high-security care for the criminally insane. The hospital itself was initially constructed as a military hospital, completed in 1939, and can house up to 140 patients. This was where Robert Francis Moan found himself after it was decided he was unfit to plead. It would be his home for the next eight years. Around 6pm on the 30th of November 1976, Robert Moan and another man, Thomas McCullough, attacked a nurse and another patient, Ian Simpson. McCullough, then 26, was sent to the mental hospital six years before, in 1970, after admitting two charges of attempted murder, having shot two employees at a motel. Both men were considered so-called parole prisoners, and had, until that point, been allowed a certain degree of freedom to move about in the hospital. That evening, there was a meeting of a drama group involving the three patients and staff nurse Neil McClellan. Moan and McCullough had concealed a number of homemade weapons in the paint shop where they'd worked. The attack began by Moan and McCullough spraying paint stripper at McClellan and Simpson. The club room was in an isolated part of the hospital building. The nurse had made a mistake by allowing himself to be alone after dark with three patients. But the turpentine used by Moan and McCullough had little effect, and McCullough had then stabbed Simpson in the head. Nurse McClellan broke away from a scuffle with Moan to try and render aid to Simpson. Simpson managed to get the knife and McClellan ran out of the room and into the hallway to try and raise the alarm, but McCullough caught up with him and attacked him with a jerry-rigged axe and then a knife. Moan, meanwhile, despite having been struck by the axe also, attacked Simpson once more. When the bodies of Neil McClellan and the patient Ian Simpson were found during the course of a check of the wards, the alarm was raised that the two men had escaped. McCullough and Moan had used a weighted rope ladder, once again made in the hospital workshops, to scale the perimeter fence. Once they got outside the hospital grounds, Moan and McCullough stopped a passing car by standing in the road and waving a torch back and forth, with one of the escapees pretending to be injured. According to David Leslie's book, Carstairs, the men had specifically planned their escape for a night during the week when the road would be busiest with traffic, in order to make it easier to take a car. The car they flagged down was a police vehicle with two officers inside. One of the policemen, PC George Taylor, jumped from his vehicle and tried to intervene and stop the escapees, but he was attacked with an axe by the men. He had tried to summon help on a pocket radio just before the men went after him. The escapees then stole the panda car that the officer had been driving and sped away. PC Taylor was taken to a local hospital where he died of the serious head injuries that had been inflicted on him. Shortly after, the police car broke down after being driven off the road in wet conditions, and as the men tried to fix it at the side of the road, another two men stopped to try and assist. For their good turn, they were attacked by Moan and McCullough, and their van was stolen too. When the van eventually came off the road too, Moan and McCullough crossed a small river on foot and made their way to a nearby farm where they threatened a husband and wife for their car. 
Their 12-year-old daughter had snuck off and raised the alarm, but the men drove off in the wife's car. This car also crashed and stopped working. Four young people in a mini had stopped to render assistance, and again, their vehicle was stolen. Police had quickly put out an alert that the men were wanted and thought to be armed with both an axe and a knife. Roadblocks were set up and eventually the men were spotted. A chase ensued. Two van loads of armed police tried to stop the men at Lockerbie but failed. They were eventually apprehended on the M6 motorway, north of Carlisle. The inmate that was killed, Ian Simpson, was known as the A9 killer, who had been convicted of shooting dead a Leeds engineer and a Swiss student. Staff nurse Neil McClellan was 46 and married with one child. The day after the escape incident, an inquiry was launched by the Scottish Secretary of State. On the 1st of December, both men appeared in manacles in private at the chambers of Lanark Sheriff's Court, charged with murder. Then both Moan and McCullough were sent to Barlinny Prison. The following week, McCullough and Moan appeared once more before the Sheriff's Court. They were brought to Lanark to appear there under heavy guard, and further unspecified charges were laid against them. No pleas were entered at that time. The Procurator Fiscal informed the court that a full report to the Crown Office would be made as soon as was possible. Meanwhile, staff picketed outside Carstairs Hospital, preventing officials from entering the building. Work went on in a restricted manner inside the institution, however. The staff demanded that a public inquiry be held into the killings and escapes. On Wednesday, the 6th of January, 1977, Moan and McCullough appeared handcuffed to police officers at Lanark Sheriff's Court, where they entered pleas of not guilty to the charges of murdering the three other men, along with further not guilty pleas to three charges of attempted murder, two charges of assault, and three of theft. The following month, on the 28th of February, the men appeared before the High Court, sitting in Edinburgh. The two men had changed their tune. Mr. McCullough pleaded guilty to the murders of Neil McClellan, Ian Simpson and PC George Taylor. Moan pleaded guilty to the murder of PC Taylor and the Crown accepted his pleas of not guilty to the two other murder charges. They both admitted three charges of attempted murder, one of assault and two charges of robbery. In response to these pleas, Lord Dunpark said, quote, in these circumstances, there is only one sentence I can pronounce on you, and that is life. It is, of course, well known that imprisonment for life does not mean that you will be detained for life. I have, however, the power to make recommendations to the executive as to the number of years you will serve in prison, and on this occasion, I propose to make use of these powers. End quote. He went on to say that, quote, these were as deliberately brutal murders as has ever been my misfortune to deal with, end quote. He recommended in this case that life would mean life, a first in Scottish history. As for the other charges, he recommended a 10-year minimum for those, though the judge described this procedure as academic. The public inquiry into the Carstairs escape began the following month, on the 22nd of March 1977, in Lanark, with Sheriff Robert Reed, Queen's Counsel, conducting the inquiry. Miss Mary MacDonald, a 60-year-old assistant secretary at the Scottish Home and Health Department, 
and chairman of the management committee of the hospital, was called to give evidence. She said that following the escape of McCullough and Moan, new staffing arrangements had been put in place in the hospital. These changes had also followed industrial action. She also admitted that the alarm signal that had gone off at the hospital after the escape could not be heard at nearby farms which adjoined the hospital grounds. Miss MacDonald admitted that improvements needed to be made there. Mr. Tom Oswald, the divisional nursing officer at Carstairs, was shown a number of weapons that had been made by McCullough and Moan before their escape from the hospital. The weapons included a homemade axe, two dagger-type weapons, and two garrots. A sword had also been created and concealed within a two-and-a-half-foot-long rain-noise instrument. Mr. Oswald agreed that it was possible the sharp metal implement could have been made in the hospital's joiner shop. Mr. Oswald also outlined various aspects of hospital life for the inquiry. He noted that patients there had the right to purchase various items from the shop and could also order items to be delivered to them. Those would be kept in a locked box and the charge nurse had the key to that. He also said that in 1972, the nursing staff had passed a vote of no confidence in the management and senior officers of the hospital after the management committee had decided to leave so-called occupation officers in charge of workshops, without nurses present in the room to supervise. It was a move Oswald had been in favour of at the time, but told the inquiry in 1977 that he had since changed his opinion on the matter. On Friday the 25th of March, the fourth day of the inquiry, a statement by Robert Moan was read to the inquiry by Detective Inspector John Fleming. The statement was given after the two men had been caught the night of the escape. Moan said that it was McCullough who had, quote, done the buttering, end quote, and that the weapons had initially only been intended to frighten people. In the statement, he also said that it was too easy to escape from the hospital. Moan said he and McCullough had concealed a number of weapons in the paint shop where they'd worked. They'd been at a drama group the night of the escape and murders with the two men that they'd killed. The following Monday, a man who had been passing in a car the night of the escape described how he had witnessed two men he had initially taken for warders attacking two policemen. He told the inquiry how he had alerted staff at the main gate that there was something amiss. It had been about a quarter to seven, yet the alarm did not go off in the hospital until 25 minutes past seven. By that stage, Moan and McCullough were 25 miles away and were in the process of hijacking their third vehicle of that evening. The porter at the gate, Mr. George Templeton, told the inquiry that he had been doubtful of the passerby's account. Nevertheless, he passed on the information to a colleague who phoned police and notified the central nursing officer. Mr. David Brownie, who was in charge of that office that night, told the inquiry that he had immediately began checking wards after taking the call. He had to check them before sounding the alarm to confirm an escape, and needed to check if the patients were all present. Mr. George Walker, who was chief occupation officer at Carstairs, told the inquiry that searches were not made on a daily basis in the hospital. The workshop areas to cater for woodwork, paint shop, printing, knitting, basketry and cement work for the patients had their tools checked twice a day. A full search of those rooms only took place if a tool went missing, and only once had a tool not been recovered. 
Walker admitted that if thorough full searches of these areas had been carried out properly, the collection of weapons that had been made by Moan and McCullough would have been found. Despite this, Walker said that he did not support the idea of regular or daily searches of the workshop areas or patient areas because this would be detrimental to the staff-patient relationships. The vice chairman of the hospital's management committee, Dr. Ian Oswald, admitted that there was a difficulty in Carstairs in finding a balance between therapeutic treatment of their patients and security. Another charge nurse described Robert Moan for the inquiry members and said that he was a strange individual who had an odd collection of materials in his room, including a Buddha in a glass case, small effigies, books on black magic, and books on Nazism. The nurse felt that Moan had come under the influence of the younger McCullough and said that the room to him was quote-unquote bizarre. Occupational officer Thomas Latimer told the inquiry that McCullough and Moan often worked together in the paint shop under his supervision for periods of up to two hours. Neither would be searched after they finished. Latimer also agreed with the QC acting for the Scottish Prison Services that occupational officers were strictly amateurs when it came to security relating to the patients and that they would have no nursing experience either. There was an objection during the inquiry made by the Council acting for the Scottish Home and Health Department and the British Medical Association. It related to the hearing of evidence regarding McCullough and Moan and the conditions that they suffered from. The objection was made on the basis that the disclosure of such medical evidence could impact negatively upon the relationship between patients and staff at Carstairs going forward, but this was dismissed. The reasoning behind the decision was that the patients who were most affected by this disclosure were now housed at Barlini. Dr. Richard Roscrow told the inquiry that McCullough had homosexual and sadistic tendencies and was a classic psychopath. Consultant psychiatrist Dr. John Gotea Loveg said Moan was of average intelligence but was overcome with feelings of inferiority. He had acted out in violence when he realised that he would not be able to fulfil his ambition and rise through the ranks in the army. The doctor said that Moan's initial murder of Mrs. Hansen had emerged from this situation, but had occurred after Moan had a fight with his father, Robert Moan Sr. The doctor said that Moan had gotten the gun with the intention of shooting his father, but had instead returned to his former school. While in Carstairs, Moan had passed his O-levels and A-levels, and had undertaken an open university degree in law, which he had just failed at the time of the triple murder. In response to suggestions made by nursing staff that Gotia Lovig had not seen his patients often enough, he said it was important to be able to see the differences in his patients over time, which required that there be a period of time between meetings and said that he had not gotten enough information from the nursing staff. Mr. James Wren, the Associate Chief Constable of Strathclyde, told the inquiry that there was a need for increased and updated security measures at Carstairs. He suggested a double perimeter be instituted with electronic detection gear and that modifications to the alarm system were required, in addition to full security training for all staff. He also called for a direct line to be installed between the hospital and the local police station at Lanark, 
noting how on the night of the escape, both buildings found their switchboards overwhelmed with calls from worried family members and from the press. Professor Alistair McRae was the physician superintendent in charge of the hospital and told the inquiry that he had instituted a less rigid form of discipline when he took up his post in 1969, but he went on to admit that in the last year, the system had perhaps become complacent. It was not a deliberate slackening of security measures, he said, rather a slow slip in maintaining procedure. With regard to the slowness to sound the alarm, McRae said that this was caused by general confusion, which was unfortunate, but it was not a mistake of procedure. The following week, Sheriff Robert Reed, Queen's Counsel, and his three assessors were to travel to Carstairs itself, where they would interview various patients. Then they were expected to go to Barlini to speak to both McCullough and Moan about their escape. Closing speeches would also be heard the following week, where counsel representing the Scottish Office, the Scottish Prison Officers Association, the Royal College of Nursing, the Mental Welfare Commission, and others would speak for the last time on the matter. In his closing speech, Mr Philip Kaplan, who had appeared on behalf of the Scottish Secretary, told the inquiry that the staff quality and competence should not be questioned. There had been judgment errors, he said, but they had to be assessed within the circumstances in which they occurred. Mr Kaplan went on to say that the staff at Carstairs did, quote, responsible and valuable work in sometimes unrewarding conditions involving personal danger, end quote. In contrast, Mr Alistair Cameron for the Mental Welfare Commission said that listening to the witnesses who spoke about the operation of Carstairs made it clear that there was a serious lack of communication and leadership. He said that if they'd asked six witnesses involved in the management of the building who was ultimately in charge, he had no doubt that the inquiry would have gotten six different answers in response. He said there was nowhere for the buck to stop no one who took ultimate responsibility for what had gone wrong there. The management had been more concerned by the numbers on payroll than the quality of staff present in the hospital. They had little to no training in security or forensic psychology, and many of the nurses had been attracted to the positions due to the job security and the time off allowed, rather than a calling, to psychiatric care. The following day, Donald Robertson, who represented the Scottish Prison Officers Association, pointed out that it had taken three murders and two escaped prisoners for the issues within the hospital to be looked at seriously. Had the concerns of staff regarding communication and security been addressed earlier by management, the situation that arose might have been avoided. Counsel appearing for the British Medical Association, William Prosser, said that Alistair Cameron's accusation of buck-passing had been simplistic and not in line with what had been heard during the inquiry. In May of 1977, Robert Moan was transferred to Perth Prison with Thomas McCullough to be sent to Peterhead. Moan's move resulted in calls for the security at Perth Prison to be reviewed and updated as there had been escapes from the jail in recent years. Staff at the prison were reported by the Aberdeen Press and Journal as being opposed to Moan being allowed to work like other men held there due to the weapons that had been created and hidden while he was in Carstairs. The security measures at the prison were indeed looked at before Moan was moved. The Reed report was delivered in November of 1977. 
It made a number of recommendations, including increasing lighting around the hospital, extra fencing, spot checks for patients and searches of visitors. But along with those recommendations came a statement that the criticisms of staff and procedure were no more than could be inevitably laid against any other similar institution. The chief nursing officer came in for some criticism in particular, though, with Reed noting that he had a lack of drive, limited powers of discipline for his staff, and that training for staff was minimal. It was stated, however, that Mr. Oswald had been working within an imperfect system, which had been the root cause of many of those problems. There were 50 recommendations set out in the report, including improving the alarm system so that it might alert those living around the hospital of an escape and an annual inspection by an independent security expert. It was announced that £1 million worth of improvements were to be put in place, including a second perimeter fence. And though you would think that a life sentence and a public inquiry would be the end of the story, there would be quite a bit more to come. Just as the public inquiry was wrapping up into the escape from Carstairs, Robert Moan appeared before the Perth Sheriff Court. But this was Robert Christopher Moan, the 55-year-old father of Robert Francis Moan, resident of Perth Prison. Robert Moan Sr., who went by Sonny, was answering a charge of assaulting a prison officer while he was in Perth Prison. Sonny had been brought there because he was arrested for public drunkenness. He was so out of it when he arrived at the prison that he was unable to walk and had to be assisted by two policemen. But while in the reception area, Sonny got annoyed at being kept in a small cubicle and kicked the door down. After that, he hit a senior prison officer in the face and kicked him. Sonny had denied the charges but was found guilty and fined £100, which he would have to pay back weekly. After the verdict was decided, Sonny told the court that he had four previous convictions and went on to say that his home life was difficult. His wife had left him taking the children and then after that Robert Jr. had committed the shooting at St. John's School. Sonny said that after that, his world had collapsed. But within 18 months, Sonny was back in court. On the 11th of May 1979, he appeared before the High Court at Dundee in relation to an horrific attack on three women in the city. Moan Sr. was charged with three counts of murder, one of attempted murder, two charges of assault, two charges of indecent assault, breach of the peace, and a charge of theft. He indicated that he would be entering a plea of not guilty to the charges when he appeared before the court later that month. All of the charges related to the period of the 29th of December 1978 to the 2nd of January 1979. Three women were found badly beaten, tied up and strangled at a flat in Kinghorn Road, where one of the victims had lived. After the selection of a jury in the case, the trial began on the 28th of May 1979 before Lord Robertson and a jury of 12 men and three women. The court heard from Mr. John Miller of Lansdowne Square. He had been married to 29-year-old Cathy for less than a week when she failed to return home from a shopping trip. Mr. Miller described meeting Cathy in 1977 but said that they had begun their relationship in early 1978. Cathy had gone to the bank and to the shops on the 29th of December. She'd rang home at around 4pm, asking John for the potatoes to be put on for tea, saying she was on her way home. But she never arrived. 
Mr. Miller sat up waiting for her most of the night and reported Cathy missing when she hadn't arrived by the following morning. That day, a Sunday, he borrowed a friend's car and went driving around Dundee to see if there was any sign of Cathy. He'd gone twice to a retirement flat complex, known locally as No Man's Land due to its older female residents, remembering that his wife had spoken about having a friend who lived there. But when he knocked, there was no reply. When he called again a third time, he found the area sealed off by police and was told that the bodies of three women had been found inside. They were Agnes Waugh, 78, Jane Simpson, 70, and his 29-year-old wife, Cathy. Stuart Hutton, a 20-year-old drinking buddy of Sonny's, recalled for the court that he and Moan Sr. had spent the day drinking together on the 29th of December and had headed to the block of flats in Kinghorn Road initially to visit Sonny's aunt, Agnes Waugh. Instead, they'd gone to Mrs. Simpson's flat. Mr. Hutton told the court that Kathy Miller had opened the door and Mrs. Simpson had invited them in. They drank there for a while. Sonny tried to get Mrs. Simpson to go to the shops to buy more drink, but Stuart Hutton volunteered instead. Sonny gave him two pounds. While out of the flat, though, he decided he didn't want to go back and had gone to a betting shop instead. When he was cross-examined, Mr. Hutton became very defensive and was described by papers as shouting at Robert Moan Sr.'s defence counsel. It had been put to him that, in fact, it was Sonny who had left the flat that night, not him, implying that perhaps it was Mr. Hutton that was responsible for the murders of the women. He denied this strenuously. When he was asked about the blood that had been found on his jeans that he'd worn the night of the murders, he insisted that the drops had been from a nosebleed he had had two weeks before that had not washed out. Other evidence was also heard regarding Sonny's behaviour while under the influence of drink. A witness named Georgina Witten described Sonny approaching a table that she was sitting at in a pub at lunchtime on the 29th of December 1978. He was boasting about being the father of the Carstairs murderer, and she had been scared of him. She thought that he might be about to get into a fight with another man. A barman, James Glanville, in the same pub said he had heard the conversation and the disturbance that had followed. Mr. Glanville said he heard Sonny say, quote, My son's a killer. End quote. Mr. Douglas Jerry, who was in the pub at the same time, recalled running into Sonny in the toilets and said that the other man had told him he was going to, quote, make a name for himself, end quote. Ronald Gill told the court that he had been punched in the face by Robert Moan Sr. on the morning of the 2nd of January, which had caused a cut to his face. He identified a jade ring presented to him as the one that Moan had worn and the one that had caused the nick. On the third day of the trial, Robert Moan Sr.'s 14-year-old daughter was called to give evidence. As she was led to the stand, she cried. She was heard to say, Oh, Dad. Moan then pointed at her, shouted, Shut up, and stood as if to leave the dock. He was restrained by police officers and the young girl was led from the courtroom. Her older sister, Mary, aged 20, was called then. The two were called to describe the events of an evening where it was alleged that their father had breached the peace. He'd called to their mother's house and was demanding to be let in, saying he'd gotten into bother with the police and needed somewhere to lay low. Mrs. Moan, her 14-year-old daughter, and Mary Moan's small child left the house through a back window and went two doors down to where Mary lived. 
They got her attention by throwing a snowball at the window. The teenager went to call the police and at that moment Robert Moan Sr. broke a window in the house. He left but threatened to come back and smash up the house the next morning. After Mary Moan gave her evidence, the 14-year-old returned to the stand. The girl identified a jade ring that her father owned that he often wore and Moan Sr. had told her that it was useful when you were in a fight. Her father had been wearing this ring at the time of his arrest. She was unsure and cried while confirming her sister's story. She asked a number of times if she might be allowed to leave the stand and her father laughed at this from the dock. She waved nervously to her father as she was led away after testifying. Then Detective Sergeant Leslie Linney described how the discovery of the three women's remains had been made. Police were searching the unoccupied flats in the block because Mrs. Agnes Waugh had been reported missing. Initially, because Mrs. Simpson's home was occupied, it was not searched, but after no activity was seen in the flat, police decided to have a closer look. A detective constable had looked through the window into the flat and had seen an arm and a hand in a bed recess. At that point, the police forced the front door open. They discovered the women's bodies, one on either side of the fireplace and the third on the bed. Detective Inspector William Hart told the court that he had taken a routine statement from Sonny after the women were found dead in the flat. The interview had been arranged as Ms. Wall was Sonny's aunt. At the time, Tayside Police had no leads as to who was responsible for the three women's murders. Moan was asked then to give another statement on Sunday the 7th of January while he was under caution. He'd gone voluntarily to the Tayside police station in order to help the police with their inquiries. He told police that there were only two people in the world that loved him, his 14-year-old daughter and his son, who was up in Perth. Moan Sr. then told the police that he had some personal matters to attend to, but that he would return to the station afterwards and, quote, make a statement that will tell you all you want to know, end quote. Arrangements were made for Sonny to call back the following day at 2pm. Sonny and his solicitor duly arrived at the appointed time the following day, but the solicitor informed the police that after consulting with her client, he had had nothing to do with the murders and had nothing further to say to police. Moan then added that he hadn't admitted anything to them. Detective Sergeant John Underwood identified marks on Ms. Wall's face, described as indentations. A fingerprint found on a can of beer was very likely a match to Moans. On Thursday the 30th of May, after Lord Robinson dismissed objections made by the defence, Mr Donald Rushton, senior lecturer in forensic medicine at Dundee University, gave evidence regarding the nature of some of the wounds to Ms Wall's face. William Galbraith for the defence had tried to argue that the evidence that would be offered would prejudice the case against his client. In the end, the doctor described a wedge-shaped puncture on Ms. Wall's face and said that he was satisfied that the injury was caused by a strong punch by someone who was likely wearing a prominent ring. The jade ring that had been collected from the defendant was shown to Dr. Rushton and he confirmed that this ring could have caused the injuries he had observed. Dr. Rushton had also examined Sonny after his arrest and said that Mr. Moan had a number of injuries that could have been sustained during an assault taking place around the time of the women's deaths. 
The jade ring had been examined closely by forensic officers and blood had been found on it, which matched the blood group of Mrs. Miller and Miss Wall. It did not match Moan's blood type, however. Mrs. Miller appeared to have fought hard for her life, as indicated by injuries to her. There were scratches on her that might have been caused by fingernail scrapes, indicating a struggle of trying to pull someone's hands away from her. The three women's deaths had occurred sometime between the 29th of December and the 1st of January, but there was no way to further narrow down the time frame. Sonny Moan's sister also gave evidence about her brother's ring and said it had previously belonged to her nephew, Robert Francis Moan. Sarah said that on January 3rd, Sonny had called to her house and asked their mother for the ring and was given it. She admitted that this was not something she had told the police at the time she made her statement, however. She said the police hadn't asked any questions about where she had seen the ring and when, only if she knew of it. She insisted that she was not trying to help her brother and that she was telling the truth. On the seventh day of the trial, prosecuting counsel Mr. Brian Gill gave his closing statement after dropping some of the additional charges against Moan, including indecent assault and attempted murder. He outlined the evidence that had been presented, that Sonny had been out drinking that day, that he and Mr. Hutton had gone to the ladies' flat, and that he had been left there alone with them. There were wounds consistent with his rings on their bodies. He knew one of the women as she was his aunt. He'd been heard bragging earlier in the day about making a name for himself and saying his son was a murderer. Mr. Gill said that what had appeared on the surface as a totally motiveless crime, did have a motive, but it was a strange and twisted one. Sonny had killed because he wanted to, quote, make a name for himself, just like his son had done. Gill said, quote, he was in the grip of some bizarre and twisted emotion that had been building up inside of him, and he killed these women in a terrible fit of violence. When he said he was going to make a name for himself, I would suggest his mind was turning towards some spectacular crime, a crime so brutal so callous, so savage, as to ensure for the perpetrator a notoriety that would remain with him for the rest of his days, End quote. The jury found Robert Sonny Moan guilty of the murders by a majority verdict, and the judge handed down life sentences and recommended that he serve at least 15 years. Moan and his defence counsel, Mr. Galbraith, appealed the conviction and appeared before the High Court in Dundee in late November of 1979. They argued that there had been a material misdirection which had prejudiced Moan. Lord Robinson had, according to them, described the evidence in such a way as to support the Crown's argument, things like the time of death of the women. The judge's summary of the medical evidence, Galbraith argued, would also likely mislead the jury in that regard. They also said that the trial judge had erred in law by allowing evidence to be heard in relation to the medical opinion of what might have caused the wound to Ms. Wall's face. Galbraith also said that there was fresh evidence to be heard. They'd located a witness who had heard Mr. Hutton say something that indicated his guilt for the murder. But after two days of hearings on the matter, leave to appeal was denied. In January of 1983, news broke that Sonny Moan had died in prison. His surviving family, including his mother and sister, 
said that they were devastated. Sonny had protested his innocence while in jail and had been mounting an attempt to clear his name the year before. His most recent solicitor said that they had found new witnesses to that night, but found that those people who had come forward with new information were unwilling to make formal statements on the events. Details regarding Sonny's cause of death were initially not even provided to the Moan family, and the public would only learn the full course of events once more in a courtroom on the 11th of May 1983. At that time, Anthony Curry, a fellow inmate at Craig Inch's prison, stood trial for the murder of Robert Sonny Moan. The court heard that on the morning of the 13th of January, around 60 prisoners were in a workshop in the jail having a tea break when Curry charged at Moan, roaring. The action was initially interpreted as a, quote, high-spirited carry-on, but Curry had a knife taken from an area in the shop used for fixing shoes. He'd stabbed Sonny in the neck, causing a gaping wound, and went on to further injure him in the chest, back, and head. Moan grabbed a large tea urn in the course of the attack, hitting Curry. While Curry screamed, quote, at last, it's taken me 13 months, but I've got you, end quote. Prison guards grabbed both men after the explosive split-second attack. Later, Curry would tell prison officers that he had initially targeted John George Haig and another prisoner named Byrne because they had been troublemakers in the prison. But when neither of the other men were present, he decided to go after Moan, saying he too was behind some of the issues he felt were ongoing among the prisoners. Moan was rushed to the prison surgery and Curry was brought back to his cell all the while still shouting curses at Moan. Sonny passed away quickly, despite medical attention. At his trial, Curry had pleaded not guilty, saying that he had attacked Sonny Moan in self-defence after the older man had come into his cell early that morning and threatened him with a knife, and asserting that Moan had been holding a knife at the time of the fatal attack on him. In fact, Curry said, Moan had headbutted him during the altercation and had impaled himself on the knife. But prison officers said that they could not recall any abusive remarks being made by Moan, nor could they confirm that Moan had been pestering Curry in any sexual way. According to the Aberdeen Evening Express, quote, Curry said he was in no doubt Moan preyed on young prisoners for sex, and he said the quote-unquote war of nerves began in Craig Inch's after Moan tried to get him to collaborate because he wanted to commit a sexual act with a young glue sniffer, but Curry had refused, end quote. Curry himself told the court that he had detested Moan, who he had called probably the most obnoxious man in the country. Curry said he'd been afraid Moan and his associates were going to kill him. Moan had turned everyone in the prison against him, and up to the date of the attack, he had spent two months trying to avoid the other man. He believed Sonny wanted to kill him so that he would be sent to the special unit at Barlinny. Curry said he had decided to approach Moan in the workshop as it was as close to a public place within the prison that they could get. Curry said, quote, I was trying to pacify him, but the venom in him was so much. He saw the knife at his throat and butted me on the nose and impaled himself on the knife. His eyes were open all the time. Even as the knife was in, he was glaring at me. End quote. Other prisoners housed alongside the men recounted how they had heard Moan make threats against Curry. Curry admitted that he hated Moan but denied having a particular hatred for other prisoners 
who were thought to have committed crimes of a sexual nature, or the notion that he had a particular obsession over them. It was the second time Curry had been before the court for attacking another inmate, as he had savagely assaulted a man with a table leg, who was in prison for the abduction and torture of a two-year-old girl. After deliberation, the jury reached a unanimous verdict that Tony Curry was guilty of the lesser charge of culpable homicide and was sentenced to a minimum eight-year term. They had accepted the notion of provocation and Curry's agent, his defence attorney, said that Moan had been, quote, the author of his own misfortune, end quote. After his father's death, in February of 1995, Robert Francis Moan was before the courts once more, accused of assaulting a fellow prisoner. He was found guilty of throwing a bowl of boiling water over another man. He'd been seen getting the bowl of water and heard calling out the other man's name before emptying its contents over Joseph Connor, after Connor, who was known to suffer from AIDS, allegedly spit on Moan the day before. The sheriff sentenced Moan to six months for this assault. In June of 1996, Moan himself was the victim of an attack. The Aberdeen Press and Journal reported that Moan was stabbed in Perth Prison on the 5th of June 1996. He was brought to the hospital wing for his injuries, having suffered a number of stab wounds and eventually transferred by ambulance to Perth Royal Infirmary for a few hours that night. At the time of the attack, the Dundee Courier reported that Moan was being held in part of the prison known as the Time Out Unit, which was where some of the more difficult prisoners were housed in isolation from the general population. In March of 1997, 23-year-old Stephen Lynch, who had been housed on his own with Moan in this segregation unit, was found guilty of stabbing the older man in what was described as a frenzied attack. Lynch had pleaded self-defence, saying that he had been playing music on his personal stereo, which was plugged into an extension cord and into a socket that was in Moan's cell next to his. But Moan had disconnected this ghetto blaster. Moan said that he'd told Lynch that if he needed to use the plug, the radio would have to be turned off. And further, Moan had tried to tell him that he needed to use it, but Lynch couldn't hear him over the noise of his music, and this was what had prompted the attack. Lynch said that Moan had antagonised him, had unplugged the stereo out of spite, and had previously threatened him with a homemade knife. Lynch said Moan had come out of his cell going ballistic and had lunged at him with a knife. Lynch grabbed it, and that's when Moan was injured. Lynch got an extra six months added to his sentence of six years for serious assault, and was transferred to a different prison. Thomas McCullough was released from prison in May of 2013. The full-life tariffs that had been handed down to both himself and Moan after their escape from Carstairs had been reviewed and revised in light of a decision made by the European Court of Human Rights in 2002. McCullough finally succeeded at the parole board after going before them five times. He had been in custody for over 40 years in total, nearly the entirety of his adult life, though in recent years he had been held in Castle Huntley, an open prison, and had been allowed day release and unsupervised visits to his home. In 2019, the Scottish Sun reported that McCullough was spotted in Peterhead Prison after it was turned into a museum. He had brought his girlfriend with him and was giving her a guided tour. 
Robert Moan also had his life tariff reviewed, and it was downgraded to a minimum sentence of 25 years. But unlike McCullough, Robert Moan is still in prison. He's currently housed in Glenockle. In 2015, Moan's recollections of his crimes were published in David Leslie's book, Carstairs, Hospital for Horrors. The extracts from the letters give the impression of someone who was self-centred and self-important, and manipulative enough to try and subtly shift the blame for his actions elsewhere. Much of what occurred in Carstairs, Moan says, was McCullough's doing. In fact, Robert Francis Moan told Mr. Leslie that he is now sure that, had he and McCullough not been captured when they were, Moan himself would have been the next to die. According to Moan, he was told that McCullough had planned this. He was next. But today, 72 years old, Moan is still alive. In May of 1968, Marion Young was awarded the George Medal for Bravery. Nanette Hansen was posthumously awarded the Albert Medal in honour of her life-saving actions. Her husband, Guy, to whom she'd been married only seven months, was presented with the medal. Fifty years on from the tragedy at St. John's School, it emerged that, through the only unobstructed window into Nanette Hansen's classroom, a police sniper had in fact got Moan in his sights, but he was not given the order to shoot. A retired police inspector who was present for Moan's arrest lamented that, had that order been made, perhaps three more lives would have been spared from Robert Moan. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating. Or tell a friend. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Anna Iris Marquez Ramgrab, Louise Sr., Emma Maxwell, Heva Kavna, Haley Burkett, Aoife O'Brien, and the very wonderful humans at the Crime Lapse podcast. Do check them out and stay tuned at the end for a little promo of their show. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. It's hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going, and along with the warm fuzzies of helping out, you get ad-free and bonus episodes and nifty merch. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week. Head to payoff.com forward slash mensrea to get started on the road to managing your debt. And don't forget to check out ritual.com forward slash mens for 10% off your first three months of vitamins. Our theme music is Quinsong The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. They murdered her. A vile and disgraceful act. We were able to discover the remains of two humans. Welcome to Crime Lapse. 
I'm Eileen. And I'm Charlie. Crime Lapse is a true crime podcast that uses primary audio, in-depth research and emotive narration to give you an immersive insight into the darkest tales and most horrifying crimes. Find Crime Lapse wherever you listen to podcasts and at Crime Lapse Podcast or at Crime Lapse Pod on social media. Everyone has a story to tell, so why not let us tell you some?